something a little different. We do this about once a month. We're going to do Q&A after this, and the way it works is uh, my number's there. And if you have questions as, uh, as I'm talking, feel free to text me your questions, and I will address as many of them as I can at the end. Uh, so long as they happen to be related to the text, I'm not going to answer, answer them. So uh, we do this for a couple of reasons, and I think it says a couple of things about our group. One, it means I take you seriously and, uh, and your questions seriously. Two, it means uh, I can't possibly say everything that needs to be said. Um, and the fact that I will probably say I don't know or I can't get to that means uh, I'm not a perfect pastor. But it also highlights the fact that there are all kinds of different people in this room. That uh, some of you might not have any questions. You'll have heard this text five times. You'll think you know it. And hopefully I will, uh, well, hopefully by the end of the day you'll have a different opinion of the matter. But some of you will have a lot of questions. And uh, I really welcome them. I would love to hear you ask them. And if you don't feel like you can ask it in this arena, um, then you can ask me some other time. And I don't reveal who you are if you ask me a question by text. So ask away. All right, we are uh, in Luke chapter 18, and we've been studying Jesus' conversations as they recorded for us in the New Testament. And the last couple have been uh, pretty exceptional in that they all have one theme, that the individuals talking to Jesus have a major obstacle to coming to believe in him and follow him. What's been extraordinary is how different they are. One is a religious leader, well-respected. One is an outsider, scandalous. And, uh, and this guy... Uh, Well, he's actually probably the one most like us. Uh, The text calls him a ruler, and you're thinking, I'm not a ruler, I'm a freshman. Uh, Far from a ruler. But this is someone who is advantaged in his society. As we go along today, I think we'll see that we have a lot of things in common with him. And um, it's like a three-mile-an-hour breeze coming from over there. but in preparation for, for the text and for the ruler, I have to share with you that this is one of my favorite times of the year. Probably no one here is excited about it but me. Basketball season's five days away. Especially the NBA. Me and probably Brad are the only people that are excited, and he's not excited because he's a Lakers fan. And uh, some of you are from Philly or outside of Philly, right? How many of you are from Philly or outside of Philly? And how many of you are Sixers fans? That's what I thought. Almost no one. Yeah, yeah. So the Sixers are remarkable. And this is what makes them remarkable. Uh, to borrow a phrase I read from a great music review yesterday, it's not their peerless suckitude. Um, it's a great phrase. Um, because they are peerless in their suckitude this year. In the last couple of years, it's their brazen strategy. Their brazen strategy for the last two or three years has been to be as bad as possible in order to get good. The way it works is the worse you are, the better a position you have in the draft lottery and the higher your chance of landing the next great savior, whether it's Tim Duncan or Kobe Bryant or LeBron James or someone like that. And it sometimes really does work. No matter how much fans, coaches, and players especially hate it, it does sometimes work. Now, the interesting thing and the interesting parallel for us is, as it regards to Christian life and what we have to read today, it's pretty much almost always true. That in the faith, that the losers are actually often winners, and that what we conceive or think of as winners are almost always losers. So we're going to read Luke chapter 18, and uh, it's a couple different sections, but they do relate to one another. So I'm going to start in verse 15 and read through 33. So Luke 18, verse 15. 
They were bringing even infants to him, that being Jesus, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. A ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I've kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, okay, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, looking at him with sadness, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? He said to them, what's impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, "Uh, see, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come eternal life. Taking aside the twelve, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. All right, feel free to join me as I pray. Good Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord Jesus, for this story. And we pray that uh, as you promised to do, that you will work by your word, through your spirit. So show us ourselves, and show us especially yourself. And be gracious to take your good news and press it deep into our understanding and into our hearts. Pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, I was reading recently this wonderful book on rest that I have to read all the time as a substitute for rest to remind me that I need to rest. And uh, he was recounting this story by uh, G.K. Chesterton, great 19th century British literary figure and sort of theologian as well. And uh, Chesterton tells this story of a young boy being given a, a choice. He could either be gigantic or minuscule. Now, which do you think he chose? That's right. So uh, I have a six-year-old boy, and all the time he's pretending to be Godzilla or... King Kong or whatever he wants and he does destroy things obviously so this young boy likewise uh, chose to be gigantic and at first it was a delight as his head brushed the clouds as he strode from shore to shore a number of strides as he waded through the ocean and swooped up handfuls of ocean water and the whales swum in the palm of his hands like tadpoles and uh, when he got tired of things he kicked over mountains just for the fun of it and when he got tired he laid down in Nebraska and he sprawled his arms across South Dakota and it was all great for about a day and then he got bored because he'd seen everything and that day he dreamed about what it would be like to be small and he realized if I was small my backyard would be like the Amazon and I would never get tired of exploring it and I could jump on the back of butterflies and fly and he began to realize all the great things he could do if he was small Now, I think we're smart enough to understand the significance of the parable and the meaning of it. I'm not sure we're wise enough to really embrace it, however. uh, Because really, deep down, 
uh, we realize that to be small also involves being vulnerable and weak and insignificant and uh, not in control. And uh, deep down, especially as Americans, uh, we're pretty darn committed to our individualism and our self-reliance. If you slice us deep, that's what we bleed. And uh, that's a problem. It's a real problem, especially in this text. Because we're going to see that the life that Jesus is calling us to, a life in the kingdom, as he calls it, where we love God and love others and follow him, that requires renouncing our self-reliance. We have to renounce our self-reliance and then follow him. And we're going to talk about this in a couple different categories. And and I made these as convoluted as possible today. I'm sorry. Um, So... Good luck with that. Uh, but the first one, we're going to talk about how uh, this ruler's rules are revealed. So if you get bored, you can just try and say that in your head as a tongue twister. Ruler's rules revealed. And then secondly, we're going to talk about uh, a warning, the warning that Jesus gives for those who are self-reliant. And then lastly, we're going to see how the impossible becomes possible. All right? So the ruler's rules are revealed. Uh, in verse 18, this ruler comes and... Uh, I don't think ruler means he has any particular power. Some people think he might be a religious leader. I don't think that's necessarily the case. This is a guy who's got some social and financial cachet, and he's got connections. And uh, that's what's intended by this word. He's uh, got ahead in life, or he was given enough, or he's gotten ahead in life. And uh, he is interested, based on what Jesus has just said about children coming to him and how they must inherit the kingdom like children, he's interested in this topic. And he asks Jesus, hey, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And uh, Jesus' answer is really interesting uh, and potentially rude, depending on how you look at it. Um, He simply says, why do you call me good? And I don't think Jesus is being rude. I think what Jesus is actually doing is he's revealing these rulers, this ruler's rules. Uh, This guy, very casually, has done a couple things, I think, with this simple idea of calling Jesus a good teacher. One, he's shown that uh, deep down at heart, his own standard of goodness is what matters. I get to decide decide who's good and who's not, and I'll call you good even if I don't know you. And Jesus basically says, no, you can't do that game. If you really want to know how to inherit eternal life, we have to start with the baseline that no one's good but God. You don't get to go around just calling everything, everyone good. You don't actually know. God's good. But secondly, I think even deeper what Jesus is doing is exposing this guy for who he is. And that's a flatterer. Hey, good teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Here's someone with cachet and social connection and power who's used to getting things his way. He's using flattery. And Jesus is saying, I'm not playing your game. I'm not impressed by you calling me a good teacher. You don't know me. Moreover, uh, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you don't even know what good is. And, but Jesus, I, I don't think he's being rude. He's simply saying, I'm not going to play your game. And then he asks him a couple questions. And he, he asks him about the commandments. And he, uh, he names a couple of them. And uh, these are the commandments that tell us how we're supposed to love our neighbor. And uh, it's really interesting, the guy responds, I've done those since I was a kid, uh, and it's possible that he's sort of telling the truth, but in a very, uh, in a very self-deceived and shallow manner. So you know, what happens is we tend to think the commandments are like the ethical ideal, the highest, the highest uh, revelation of the law or what God would 
would have us do. But really, if you live with children, you know that the law is like the minimum standard. So I tell my kids all the time to do things, and they'll be like, every night, Caleb, go brush your teeth. And he goes away for like seven minutes and comes back, and I'm like, Caleb, did you brush your teeth? And he says, yes, of course I did. But I've seen him brush his teeth, and he never brushes his teeth. What he does is he sticks his toothbrush in his mouth, and he chews it on one side while he reads a book. In his mind, he's brushed his teeth. In my mind, he hasn't even started. Same thing with anything else I tell my children. Clean the table. Did you clean the table? And they like go get a dirty napkin and like spread stuff around and throw food all over the place. And yes, in their mind, they clean the table. Well, this guy looks at the commandments, and he's like, I haven't committed adultery. I didn't sleep with anyone's wife, and I haven't murdered. I didn't really kill anyone. Those are the minimum baseline. Of, of what God really requires. What God is after is that we love our neighbor. And that's what Jesus reveals with this next thing he springs on him. After this guy confidently says, yeah, I've kept these since my youth, Jesus says, okay, just one thing more. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Follow me. And the guy can't do it. And what he's revealing to this guy is that he has had a history of interpreting the rules in such a way that he might feel good about his way of life that he might protect his idol, which is money, all while protecting his, his own self-reliance. That's what he's really done. Jesus issues this radical call that this young man, if he really wants an internal life, he needs to love God and love the poor, love his neighbor. And he can't do it. He thinks he's doing it because he follows the law and the barest minimum standard. And that's why everyone, almost everyone, thinks they're a good person. Because they followed the, the barest minimum of the law. But then if you ask them, or ask their friends, does this person really love God? Does this person really love others? Do they really love the poor? They'd be like, no, I don't think so. Uh, and if you say the same thing about yourself, probably. So what we have here is the ruler is being exposed. He thinks he's done what he needs to, to, to be right, to be right with God. Jesus shows him what he really loves, and what he really loves is his money and his self-reliance. Um, and we're like him. He's advantaged and we're advantaged. I don't know all your stories, so some of you may be insulted by me saying you're advantaged. And if I don't know your story, I'm sorry. So let's get together and you tell me your story. That'd be great. Um, but for the most part, we've been advantaged. We've, most of us have had good homes. We've grown up in homes where you've been encouraged to be curious and intellectual. You've gone to decently good schools. You're here. Uh, some, most of you have grown up fairly wealthy compared especially to the rest of the world and to human history. Uh, most of you have grown up in safe environments and you have limitless almost opportunities. Not really limitless opportunities. I don't believe you can do whatever you want. But more so than any other people in human history, you can pretty much do whatever you want. You're pretty advantaged. And in some ways, this is the closest guy in the scriptures to us, this young guy. And I want to stop for just a moment. We can talk about all these things, but I am just going to talk about money for a minute. Because it's sort of insidious, and we're blind to its effects on us. And we like it. I mean, I like money. Anybody here not like money? Real quick. Cool. That's what I thought. Um, so how many of you think you're generous? Show of hands. You're scared to raise your hand. Wisely. Yeah, so uh, these numbers are a bit old, but I think it's probably only gotten worse. In 2004, the average U.S. house earned about $52,000. The average U.S. home had about $7,000 in credit card debt. And the average giving for all causes was $794. 1.5% of Americans 
well, excuse me, one, Americans gave 1.5% of their income. $52,000 is a lot of money for most people in the world. We gave 1.5%. You think, well, it might be better in the church. A little bit. Yeah, much. Uh, eight evangelical denominations were surveyed in 2003, and those homes gave 4.4% of their income. Well, that's better, but I would certainly not call it generous. And it's getting worse. It's gotten worse over the decades. It's getting worse now. And uh, how do you explain it? How do you explain it? I mean, there's lots of things we could say. And I'm not beating up on you or your parents or myself. I beat up on myself a lot anyway. But I'm not doing that right now. Uh, we, we earn more, spend more, save less, give less. And I think at heart it's because we give money to that which we think gives us life. That's it. We feed the thing that we think gives us significance in life. And we do not think the church or missions or God gives us life. We think newer cars and better homes and more security and uh, bigger vacations give us life. And so we do whatever we can to feed that monster. And that's what we're committed to. And uh, right now, you're thinking, well, I don't have any money, so this doesn't apply to me. But it does. It does, somewhat. I mean, what do you, what do you spend your money on? And I know some of you might not have money. I, I, <laughs> my own story is I went to college free on scholarship, but every month I had about $100 left over at the beginning of the semester. And that was my money for the whole semester. I had $100 for the whole semester. And I had to make it stretch. But I could do it because I lived on a campus that was actually a campus, not this urban disaster, which I love. I love this urban disaster, but it would be really hard to make it $100 here. So, uh, but what do you spend your money on? What do you invest in? And what does that say about you? And uh, then secondly, the corollary to that is, if you don't have money, you can't be generous now with your money because you don't have any. And I understand if you don't because you're a student. But how can you be generous now? You do know you're never going to be less busy than you are now, right? Seriously, if you think that's true, it's probably not true. Growing up is the assumption of more responsibility, okay? That's what happens. You're going to be more busy. And and how will you be generous? With your money? If you're not generous with your money now, you might not be generous later. With your time? If you can't find time to serve now, do you really think you'll be more generous in the future? So, uh, yeah, if if you're looking for opportunities to be generous with your time and to serve, we've given you some. I'd love for you to jump in. But I would really like for you to think about how can you be a generous human being? And it's important that you do that, not just because you're earning God's favor. That's not it at all, actually. It's because Jesus is exposing something about us. That if we're not generous, if we don't love others, there's something fundamentally wrong with our hearts. And and he traces it back, I think, to self-reliance. And uh, here we're going to have a pretty strong warning about self-reliance. I'm going to try and move through this pretty quickly. He's giving a real warning in verses 24 and 25. I think it's hilarious. Um, In verse 24... He, uh, he's just sort of shot this guy down. He seems eager enough. The disciples are probably really excited. Hey, this guy's like loaded. He's young. He's one of us. He wants to join the team. Jesus is like, nah, he's unqualified. He's got too much money. And um, he, uh, while the guy is still there, Jesus, looking at him with sadness, while he's still there, says, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom. It's better for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Yeah, it's easier. And I've thought about it a lot because I'm morbid. I, uh, I've been thinking about it for years. I don't really know how you can get a camel through the eye of a needle. Pushing it won't work. I try for a little while. I think blending could work. But I'm not sure. 
pretty bad. So, yeah, and I'm pretty sure I get arrested. So, yeah, I mean, it just it doesn't happen. Jesus has painted a picture of the impossible. And he's really just, it, this should hurt us a little bit. He's saying the wealthy can't get in. And what is it about money? And I don't think it's actually about money. Because Scripture says a lot of things about money, but ultimately, it's not money itself that's the problem. I think Jesus here traces the problem to self-reliance. And I think if you go back and look at what Jesus calls this guy to do, what Jesus is doing is a very acute diagnosis of this young man. So Jesus says in verse 22, Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor. All right, you think you love your neighbor. You think you love them. Well, let's take your neighbor. Your neighbor isn't who you get to pick. It's everyone. And Jesus says, God loves the poor. So the neighbor I'm calling you to love is the poor ones. Love them by giving them out of your abundance. And the guy looks and says, I can't do it. And then Jesus says, if you do this, you'll have treasure in heaven. That involves a radical trust in God. You're going to sell and give away your treasure. But it's okay because you're going to have a treasure in heaven. God's going to provide for you. He's going to meet you. Out of his wealth of resources of joy and peace and community, he's going to give you life, a new treasure. You have to trust him. And the guy says, can't do it. And Jesus says, lastly, you have to come follow me. You have to leave this life you're living and this treasure you have, and you have to follow after me. You have to renounce your own authority to rule and determine your own life and follow me. You have to trust me more than you trust yourself. And the guy says, I can't do it. He can't do it. Because this guy is fundamentally committed to his own self-reliance. The idol of wealth is what enables him to live that way. But I think at heart, we all have that kind of idol. That thing that props us up and makes us able to live life on our own. And maybe right now it's not your wealth, but your dream of wealth, your dream of security, your prestige, your social cachet. All these are things, or one of these are things that you're investing in heavily that you think will enable you to live life on your own and will make your life work. And... uh, Deep down, I think what we really love is not our neighbor. What we really worship isn't God. What we really follow isn't Jesus. What we really want and worship and follow is our idealized, individualistic self. A view of ourself that doesn't need God, doesn't need to love others, and doesn't need to listen to Jesus. The perfect me, with all that I want. That's what we really, really want. We want to have me on my own terms, with no... Strings attached. That's what we really want. It's almost the exact opposite of what Jesus is calling for here. And if you think I'm overselling this, I think really our culture knows this. And our culture expresses this in its song. And uh, it celebrates it. And I, I offer to you this little song. You've probably heard of it. All I do is win, 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 no matter what. Got money on mind, I can never get enough. Every time I step up in the building, everyone's hands go up, up, down, up, down. You know what they're doing, right? They're, they're worshiping me. Their hands go up and down in homage to my greatness. That's what up, down, up, down is all about. I've arrived because all I do is win. And that's what we want. We want people to realize I'm a winner. I got my stuff together. This is what people think the Bible's about. God loves the winners and rewards the winners. And you've got to have your stuff together. And Jesus looks at this and says, the winners, the people that got their stuff together, they've got a proverbial snowball's chance in hell or a camel's chance in a needle of getting in. The winners don't get in, guys. It's not for the winners. 
And, and really, I've learned over the years that the more competent, skilled, gifted, and advantaged you are, the harder it is for you, the more tempted you are to be self-reliant. Really. Uh, you really think you can do it on your own because you've done it on your own for a long time. Um, so, a couple years ago, I had one of our students over for uh, Thanksgiving. They were stuck here. If you're going to be stuck here over Thanksgiving, let me know. I'd love to have you over. And we started talking about the Myers-Briggs personality inventory, which some of you love and some of you hate. But we were going through, and I read my profile. And she looked at me after I read my profile, and she said, you're a jerk. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I'm an INTP, which is, by nature, uh, the most independent, self-reliant person in the world. I mean, this is me. I'm this guy. And I want to tell you, it, does, it doesn't do you any good when it comes to loving others and loving God and trusting God and following others. And it certainly, look at me, it certainly doesn't make you a happier, healthier person. Uh, am I the happiest person you know? No. Um, so Jesus' warning here is something you should really take seriously. This is the last point. We turn the corner. I've given you all the bad news. I want to give you the good news real quick. Uh, Jesus says, hey, if you're advantaged and you're a winner and you're committed to being a winner, you've got a camel's chance through a needle. Uh, and he goes on to clarify it to his men who are shocked. Actually, uh, they say, hey, who can be saved then? And Jesus is like, well, it's impossible. <laughs> it's impossible. Uh, Jesus shows us it's possible. Uh, the, the wealthy, it's hard. For anybody, it's impossible. Possible with God. But it requires us to renounce our, our self-reliance and to receive what Jesus offers like a child. This is all connected. You know, in, in, in the first uh, little section we read, some children are brought to Jesus. And frankly, if you go and study the history of the world's religious leaders, none of them give jack squat about children. I mean, I've got a bunch of children. You know what good children are? Pretty much not, not good at all. I mean, in the world's eyes of wealth, value, and getting my life along and raising my prestige, they don't help a lot. They're, they're giant distractions. I haven't slept in years. They've aged me exponentially. Um, but they're wonderful, and you love them for their own sake. But they don't really help your agenda in any way. They're not winners. Okay, I'll put it that way. Children are not winners. They poop and pee themselves and throw up. And uh, Jesus basically says, if you want to know what it looks like to come into the kingdom, you've got to come like a child. In other words, leave your greatness, leave your winning, and leave your impressive resume behind because it doesn't do you any good. You've got to come like a needy child that trusts his father and says, I really want that and need that, and I trust you're good enough to give it to me. That's how you have to come. And you have to receive it that way. And secondly, you have to rely on Jesus to actually do what he promises. After this account goes on and this uh, really advantaged, prestiged guy ends up walking away, and Jesus hears, the disciples hear what Jesus says. Peter, who's uh, the brightest of, the, of these rather dull 12 disciples, uh, says, uh, Jesus, um, we, uh, we followed you. I mean, at this point, their whole worldview about it, what it means to be right with God in the kingdom sort of been shook. They don't know what to do about this. But he said, if, if you leave and follow, then... And Peter says, like, I, I, think we, I think we did that. And Jesus basically says, yeah, you've done that. And if you go back and read through the Gospels to this point, the disciples haven't really gotten anything right. They really haven't. But they've done one thing. They've stuck with Jesus. They followed him. And that's the point. 
It's not your resume. It's not being a winner. It's receiving the kingdom like a child and following this one who does it for you. So the last part of the text in 31 through 33, Jesus immediately takes the disciples aside and says, Hey, the mission again is I'm going to, the king, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And they don't get it, but what he's telling them is what we need to hear as well. That you can trust and rely on me because, here's the story guys, by nature you're people that look for treasure and earthly things. You're stocking up and investing in sex and comfort and money and prestige and power because you think you're going to give these things life. They're going to give you life and you give your life to them and it takes from you and it takes from you. And you, and you worship and serve those things rather than me. And Jesus is saying, actually, if I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and even though I am rich in my own glory, I'm going to take your place on the cross. I'm going to give my life for you. You're giving yourself to other treasures, but you are my treasure. And I'm going to give my life for you. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what he does. That's what he does for his people. And that's why you can actually trust him. That's why you can rest in Him. That's why you can receive Him like a child. And, uh, and live and embrace the kind of life of loving God and loving others that He offers here. Okay, let's pray together.